Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sask Egg Today with Doug Faulkner. Good afternoon and welcome to Saskang Today. Coming up on today's program, more than a year of negotiating hasn't produced a new deal between Viterra and the union representing its workers. As a result, the Grain and General Services Union have issued a 72-hour strike notice for two of the locals, and they could go on strike as early as Friday afternoon. We'll hear from the union's general secretary, Steve Torgensen, about what they plan to do and how negotiations have gone. We will also have a short response from Viterra themselves. The Manitoba government's amendments to the Agricultural Crown Lands Leases and Permits Regulation have now come into effect. We'll go over those regulations for you coming up on today's program. With a few notable exceptions, most grains, oil seeds, and specialty crops are seeing lower prices than one year ago. Kevin Hirsch, the chief agricultural editor for saskagtoday.com, has all the highlights there as well. So all of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of Saskag Today. Welcome back to Saskag Today. More than a year of negotiating hasn't produced a new deal between Viterra and the union representing its workers. As a result, the Grain and General Services Union, Locals 1 and 2, have issued a 72-hour strike notice to the company and could go on strike as early as 2 o'clock Friday afternoon if a deal isn't reached. Local 1 is the country and operation maintenance workers that operate at Viterra grain terminals around the province. Local 2 is employees at the Viterra head office in Regina. The union's general secretary, Steve Torgensen, says in the event of a strike, about 450 people between the two locals would be on the picket line. Viterra's last offer was rejected by members on December 15th. One of the asks from the union is fair wages. As Torgensen explains, workers are paid a salary with raises based on performance. And most folks think a collective agreement would have sort of that language in there that provides those wage increases that folks can rely on. Unfortunately, this collective agreement provides for, uh, the company calls it pay for performance, but it isn't. Two employees in the same position who score the same performance rating based on the company's scoring system uh, may not get the same wage increase. Um, and so they also look at where the person is in the wage range. So if you're higher in the wage range, then you're actually going to receive a smaller increase than someone else will. Uh, and so the company calls it pay for performance and calls it a competitive fair pay structure, but it isn't because it doesn't reward people based on their actual performance. Other union asks include a better work-life balance and more respect in the workplace. Torgensen says members are putting in excessive amounts of overtime and having their schedule changed at a moment's notice. The company, unfortunately, got an exemption to uh, a recent change in the Canada Labour Code 
on schedules and hours of uh, scheduling and shift change. And that means that employees can show up to work on Wednesday and find out that on Thursday, uh, instead of working their regular uh, 7 to 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift, they now have to come in and work it from 10 p.m. until 10 a.m. Uh, to load rail cars. And that's not acceptable. Um, people have lives. They have things that are going on. And, uh, and, and so it's not, it's not reasonable for this to happen on a regular basis. And so it's not that it happens once or twice a year, but for a lot of folks, this is a regular occurrence that, that happens year after year, month after month. And it's too much. And it creates an unsafe and unhealthy uh, set of circumstances for the employees. And that kind of flows into the respect in the workplace. Uh, there does not seem to be value placed by the company on the efforts of, of their employees in the workplace. And this, you know, this can be most of the most of the employees come back and see this as they don't respect us. We don't see that the company is treating us as sort of, uh, you know, colleagues or people that are getting the job done together. It's more of just people to get it done and get it done as soon as possible. Uh, load those cars as soon as possible. Write those checks as soon as possible. Um, fix uh, the drags as soon as possible. And so there's uh, there seems to be a, a, a drastic sort of uh, lack of respect of employees and the efforts that they put in uh, day in and day out at the workplace. He also says the idea of a strike negatively affecting the agriculture sector was always considered. So much so that our members have been talking to their producers at their locations since this summer. And they've been talking to them, saying, he, giving them updates about how bargaining is progressing, what they're looking for at the bargaining table, and why, what the concerns are. And also letting them know, hey, if there's a potential labor disruption, we want to, you know, we'll let you know, we want to work with, with you as much as possible, but keeping them in the loop. And, and honestly, what this has done is it's created quite a community of producers that are supporting uh, GSU members, because the concerns that producers have about pricing and about competition um, and, and now potentially with even re- more reduced competition with the Bungie-Viterra merger, there's a lot of shared interest uh, in this because these folks live and work in the same communities, um, the producers and the folks that work at Viterra. And so they share a very strong bond about what they want their communities to look like. And, and so we do take that responsibility of realizing our place in the supply chain we, we recognize that this will have a disruption in getting, uh, you know, our, our farmers' crops to, to market. And we're, we're hoping that uh, producers uh, understand why we're doing it. We hope that folks in these communities understand why we're doing it and that they support us and realize that what we're asking for is what everyone uh, is wanting, which is uh, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. Torgensen believes the negotiations boil down to understanding how the pay structure will be created, as well as how to manage work-life balance. Talks will resume today and tomorrow, providing an opportunity for a resolution. Meanwhile, Viterra has responded to the 72-hour strike notice issued by the union representing its employees. In a statement, the company says it's committed to safety in the workplace and providing its workers with competitive pay and benefits within a performance-based process. As you heard, both sides have today and tomorrow to negotiate a new deal, and if no progress is made by Friday afternoon, about 436 employees will be going on strike. Viterra says it has a contingency plan in place to minimize disruption should a strike occur.
It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. The net short position in canola futures was sitting near its largest levels on record to end 2023. That's according to the latest Commitments of Traders report from the United States Commodity Futures Trading Commission. As of December 26th, the net managed money short position in canola futures came in at 110,612, which was down by about 5,000 from the record large net short hit the previous week. Open interest in the canola market came in at 240,298 contracts, which was down by 9,183 on the week. At the Chicago Board of Trade, a combination of long liquidation and speculative short covering saw the net long position in soybeans increase by about 1,000 contracts at roughly 11,500. With the new year, there was scarce price movement among the lentils in Western Canada, according to Prairie Ag Hotwire. A number of lentil varieties saw the upper end of their price range hit highs as 2023 drew to a close. The layered ones and twos topped off at 73 cents per pound, which gained one cent during December. The layered threes and X threes held at 63 and a half cents a pound on their high ends. Estin lentils also remained unchanged during the holiday week. It was pretty much the same for the Richley lentils, with the number ones and twos remaining at 70 cents per pound, while the X3 stayed at its high of 60 and a half cents per pound. Movement in the Crimsons was an exception. While not budging on the week, the high ends for one and twos held at 37 and a half cents a pound, two and a half cents below their top end of 2023. CN and CPKC Rail supplied a combined 97% of hopper cars ordered in Grain Week 21, a modest decline from the 99% order fulfillment performance seen in Week 20. The slight decline in performance reflects minor declines in performance for each of CN and CPKC. In supplying 98% of cars ordered by shippers in Week 21, CN saw performance dip slightly from the 99% order fulfillment performance they posted in Week 20. CN performance remains above the 90% performance threshold for the third consecutive week and the fifth time in the last six weeks. CPKC performance also declined slightly, with the railway supplying 97% of shipper orders in Week 21, modestly lower than the 99% order fulfillment performance posted in Week 20. CPKC performance remains above the 90% threshold for the 10th consecutive week. Warmer than normal temperatures are expected across all of Canada through the winter months, with average precipitation for most of the agricultural areas of the prairies. That's according to the latest long-range seasonal forecast from Environment and Climate Change Canada, released December 31st. They called for a 50 to 60 percent chance of above-normal temperatures from January through March across most of the country, with an even greater chance in the Atlantic provinces, parts of northern Ontario around Lake Superior, and eastern Quebec. Looking ahead to the spring, the four- to six-month forecast for April, May, June also predicts a high probability of above-normal temperatures in the spring, 
Precipitation is expected to be normal across most of Canada through the winter months, with a wetter bias in Labrador and a small pocket of northern Saskatchewan. Lorne Hepworth, former Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister and current chair of the Agriculture Research Institute of Ontario, has been named a member of the Order of Canada. Hepworth was among 78 appointments announced by Governor-General Mary Simon in late December. The London, Ontario resident was recognized for his contributions to agriculture and research, which have propelled the sector to new heights, according to Simon's office. He was a farmer and veterinarian in Saskatchewan before entering provincial politics during Premier Grant Devine's progressive conservative governments, where he served in several portfolios until 1991. After his political career, Hepworth moved to Ontario and began working with the Crop Protection Institute and Canadian Agri Group of Companies. He was instrumental in the formation of Crop Life Canada and retired as its chief executive officer and president in 2014 after 17 years. He was appointed to the Canadian Agricultural Hall of Fame that year. And SaskAg Today will be broadcasting live from Western Canadian Crop Production Show in Saskatoon next week. Be sure to tune in at 12.11 on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday afternoon for special editions of SaskAg Today. Please stay tuned. SaskAg Today will continue right after this. Welcome back to SaskAg Today. I'm Doug Falconer. It's partly cloudy and minus 10 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. The Manitoba government's amendments to the Agricultural Crown Lands Leases and Permits Regulation have now come into effect. Forage capacity will be determined when the lease is issued and will remain for the entire length of the agreement. A five-year extension on a 15-year lease term is available to leaseholders that complete and implement a forage management plan for at least the last five years of the 15-year lease term. Unlimited transfers of a 15-year forage lease or renewable permit to any eligible lessee for the remainder of the lease term. Legacy leaseholders will be able to nominate the next leaseholder subject to the treaty land entitlement and consultation assessment. And in the last year of the lease, outgoing leaseholders that choose to be compensated for improvements must obtain an appraisal from an accredited appraiser indicating the value of the eligible improvements. The appraised value will be posted at the time of allocation and if the lease is reallocated within two years of expiry, the successful bidder must pay the outgoing leaseholder the posted amount. Manitoba's agricultural crown lands are parcels of land leased to producers for agricultural use, including grazing, haying, or annual cropping. Agricultural crown lands are important public assets economically, environmentally, and socially. These crown lands are essential to supporting and growing the livestock industry in Manitoba and provide mitigation and adaptation to climate change. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 171.65. 
That's down 27. April live cattle trading at 174.60, up 10. March feeder cattle trading at 226.70, up 25. April feeder cattle trading at 232.15, unchanged. February lean hogs trading at 65.60, that's up 27. April lean hogs trading at 72.55, up 5. And that's the livestock market conditions. With a few notable exceptions, most grains, oil seeds, and specialty crops are seeing lower prices than one year ago. Kevin Hirsch, chief agricultural editor for SaskAgToday.com, highlights the price changes over the past 12 months. Cash prices for canola started 2023 in the $800 a ton range. There were ups and downs through the year, but overall prices ratcheted lower, ending the year barely above $600 a ton. That's a move from the $18 a bushel range down to around $14 a bushel. Depending upon the published prices you use, the drop in spring wheat prices from January to January has been 80 to $100 a ton, with current price quotes under $9 a bushel. On Durham, the drought in western Saskatchewan and southern Alberta caused prices to rise in the late summer, but prices came back down in the last few months of the year following unexpectedly large Durham exports from Turkey. Durham is currently a bit over $12 a bushel, somewhat lower than last year at this time. Feed barley saw a major price slide through the summer. China resumed barley purchases from Australia, cutting into Canadian exports. On top of that, American corn flowed into Western Canada, cutting into the domestic market. The year-over-year slide in feed barley prices is about $100 a ton. Depending upon location, feed barley is currently around $5.50 a bushel. Flax prices are down about $100 a ton over the year, but a few commodities have seen stable or improved prices. 2CW oats are about $40 a ton higher. The removal of import restrictions by India caused yellow pea prices to increase to levels similar to January of last year. 9mm Kabuli chickpeas are also very similar in price to a year ago, while lentil values have improved. At around 36 cents a pound, red lentils are a couple cents better than a year ago. Large green lentils have improved dramatically, going from around 50 cents a pound a year ago to around 70 cents now. For Saskag Today, I'm Kevin Hirsch. Welcome back to Saskag Today. As growers start thinking about next production season, Saskatchewan Pulse Growers agronomy manager Mike Brown says there are some must-have resources for 2024 planning. Yeah, it is getting into that time of year. Um, We're currently going to be typically seeing some soil sampling wrapping up, uh, the start of rotation planning, which is usually going to center on fertility planning, seed testing, and starting to look at booking some seed treatments and inoculants. He outlines what producers should be thinking about when it comes to fertility planning. 
Yeah, so this time of year, we're going to be either just wrapping up collecting samples or just starting to get in some results and, and doing some analysis on soil test results. Uh, big things we want to look at in pulses are uh, residual soil nitrogen and phosphorus levels. Um, pulses, and particularly peas, need uh, need quite a bit of uh, FOSS, and then as well as some starter pea, you get that, um, that pop-up effect, and they'll perform better with that phosphorus in those cool, moist soils. Also recommended to provide some of that starter N, so usually you're going to get that starter N um, if you're applying uh, granular FOSS, monomonium phosphate, you're going to get 11% of that coming up with some nitrogen. So usually provides enough for that plant before the inoculation uh, begins. Um, and then pairing this again with an appropriate inoculant, whether you're going to use a liquid or a peat or a granular. When you're starting to look at your residual nitrogen levels on those soil tests, um, 30 pounds per acre above that of nitrogen, you're going to start to see some some inhibited nodulation. When you start to push about 50 pounds per acre, you're really going to start to impact nodulation quite a bit there. Um, now, when we're talking about the phosphorus side of things, pulses are very sensitive to seed place phosphorus, uh, as well if you're going to put any potassium fertilizer down. When you're considering your seed safe rates, you have to add together that potash and any phosphorus that's going in together into that seed uh, seed row. So keeping in mind lentils and chickpeas, you want to look 20 pounds per acre actual or less of that P and K in the seed row. Peas are about 15 pounds per acre and faba beans about 40 pounds per acre. Now when we start to think about the rates we need to put down for the crops, kind of what our targeted yields are going to be and how much that, that crop's going to remove, we do have a new prairie crop nutrient removal calculator that was produced by Dr. Fran Wally and Dr. Rich Farrell at the U of S. So they used uh, uh, multiple years of data from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba to, to make these, uh, these removal charts or the uh, calculator. So you can go through and use that tool. It's an excellent tool for kind of a made in Western Canada option for calculating your fertility plans, as well as our website at saspulse.com. We have uh, a number of fact sheets and articles detailing research projects and information by crop that will address most of uh, those fertility questions. Brown then talks about choosing the right inoculant. Yeah, inoculants are going to be our bread and butter with the pulse crops, right? That's how we get away from from reducing the nitrogen fertilizer and saving a few bucks. Um, we do have a fact sheet on our website where we can go through and look at all the different inoculant types for uh, for the crop, the pulse crops that we have and that are registered. But they're going to be specific to the crop, so you're going to include in that inoculant uh, species specific strain of rhizobia. Now, this uh, these inoculants they may be co-formulated with a, a signaling molecule. Um, they may include biologicals. You've got some with penicillium species, some bacillus, uh, other uh, are muscular mycorrhizal fungi or plant growth promoting bacteria. Um, these can form symbiotic and mutually beneficial relationships with the pulse crop roots. Previously mentioned, yeah, that there's so specific strains. So, uh, for example, the rhizobia that in, inoculates peas, lentils, and fabas is going to be different from the one that'll inoculate chickpeas, which will be different from the one that inoculates soybeans. So, first and foremost, you have to make sure you've got the right strain. 
uh, when you're choosing your inoculant. So you don't want to go spend money on inoculant that's not going to do anything for the crop that you're you're going to be growing. Next, you want to look at the formulation. So formulation really depends on what the producer is comfortable using, what they're able to handle on farm. Um, some producers are set up with dedicated tanks in their drills for inoculant. Uh, you don't want to mix the inoculant with any fertilizer in the tank. You want it all by itself. Uh, if you've got a tank like that, easiest way is probably just going to be a granular to get it down. Others might want to do a, a peat formulation where you're uh, dusting or slurrying on peat into the auger as you're moving it into either the, the drill or the truck. And then as well, too, there's the option to treat with a liquid inoculant so you can get the liquids applied at the same time when you're getting the other seed treatments added onto your pulses. So basically, first, it depends on the strain. And then next, it'll depend on the formulations that are available for that strain. So some strains might not have all three options available, but uh, um, for you know a lot of our pulse crops, there's, there's the ability for either granular peat or, or liquid. He goes into the differences between peat, granular, and liquid inoculants. Generally, you would say uh, on on the safety side of things for, for the rhizobia, and it, it's a living organism, uh, granular is probably going to be your your safest formulation for rhizobia. Uh, they're physically bound and encased inside a, a clay granule bound to a food source in there. So they've got their cozy little house they're hanging out in uh, when you look at uh, a peat or a liquid in comparison. So the granulars are going to be a little bit more shelf stable, a little bit less die off rates and a better chance that uh, what you're applying into the soil is what's stated on, on the bag. A little bit more resilient to freeze thaw cycles and isn't as subject to die off if exposed to sunlight. In contrast to that, when you look at a, a peat inoculant, uh, rhizobia aren't enclosed in that clay granule, but they're going to be loosely bound to the peat, which is typically, like I mentioned previously, going to be dusted or slurried onto the seed at some point prior to seeding. Um, a little bit higher die-off rates if they're exposed to sunlight and a little bit more susceptible to a freeze-thaw cycle. The, the least stable, we would say, and most susceptible would be we be our liquid formulation. So in the liquid inoculants, the rhizobia are free-floating in a nutrient solution. You can imagine that that's going to be highly susceptible to freeze-thaw and sunlight, all of which can cause significant die-off rates. So handling those liquid inoculants is very important for proper efficacy. So usually you'll find them actually being uh, being stored in a cool, dark shed at your retail locations, and they'll, they'll basically store them on, on site there until they're applied and uh, won't be opened until they're going directly onto the seed. The other consideration that needs to be made with those liquid inoculants is that uh, we don't have when using granular peat is the seed treatment compatibility. So outside of the uh, the inoculant treatment, we've got those other seed treatments as well too. You need to be conscious of the inoculant safety and, and uh, treating time-lapse comp compatibility for those treatments. Um, not all the seed treatments that we have are safe for inoculants, so they may kill the rhizobia if applied on the same seed. As for now talking about which one provides better performance um, largely depends on growing conditions uh, so when you're considering survivability granular does tend to be the best due to its uh, it's a little bit more resilient to environmental conditions but 
SPG conducted a study looking at the performance of inoculant types under drought conditions, and we found there was no yield difference between them. They all perform the same. But what we did see is that those seed-applied inoculants, our peats and our liquids, they produce nodules more densely around the root crown of the plant, while the granular inoculant form the nodules more on those secondary and tertiary roots. Um, this was interesting because uh, with drought conditions, granular inoculant needs uh, soil water to aid the rhizobia in, in migrating to the plant roots or plant roots need to grow directly into that granular inoculant row and intercept the rhizobia to get to your, uh, your inoculation. So considering that, if those extremely dry conditions persist, there is that chance with a granular inoculant, you may see that delayed nodule formation because it isn't applied directly on the seed with our peats and our liquids to infect those roots right as they develop. But at the end of the day, no difference between the formulations for, for efficacy. It's just making sure you're inoculating your pulse crop and giving it the best chance it has no matter what formulation. Mike Brown is an agronomy manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. We'll hear more from him in just a few minutes' time. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading down across the board this afternoon. March canola trading at 642 and a quarter. Uh, that's down 90 cents. May canola trading at 650.40, down 120. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 708 and a half, down six and a half cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 621 and three quarters down seven and a quarter cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 599 and three quarters down seven cents. March corn trading at 465 and a half up one and three quarters of a cent. March soybeans trading at 1277 and a half up four cents. March oats trading at 375 per bushel down three quarters of a cent. And that's the commodities up. Welcome back to SaskAg Today. I'm Doug Falconer. We'll return to our conversation with Mike Brown, an agronomy manager with the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. He talks about the need for a seed treatment before spring seeding. I think seed treatments are, are probably, you know, we, we say it's best management practice, but especially in pulse crops, we have uh, root rot complexes in our pulse crops that are uh, numerous in species. So we have, um, you know, Phanomyces, we've got Fusarium, we've got Pythium, Rhizoctonia, Botrytis, Glaritania, uh, you name it, we've got it. So using a seed treatment is by far and away probably the, the best thing to do to get your crop to have that best chance at establishing. Um, you know, treatments are only gonna last for three to four weeks and then and then the, the efficacy wears off. So uh, being able to confidently go out there and say, well, I've given the crop the best chance it can get and we'll take a look at it again here in, you know, four weeks and see how it's doing. The other thing too, get your seed lots tested. So when you're considering a seed treatment, it's it's good to know what type of seedborne diseases you have on 
the the seed you want to use. Um, send it away to a lab, get a full pulse disease profile, determine any any pathogens on the seed. As well, you get your germ vigor and TKW, and that way you can really tailor your, your seeding rate to specifically target uh, you know plants per square foot, which is going to give you your your highest yield. So, you know, we're not not really recommending going to you know 60 60 pounds of seed per acre 120 pounds of seed per acre we kind of want to target those tkws because we have even within you know small red lentils for example we have some some lentils that are going to hold you know 30 grams per thousand kernel weight we got some that are 48 grams so i can really skew how many plants are out in the field and um you know when you when you pencil it out it, it can really affect you know your bottom dollar as well to check your fields um if you want to do a, a soil test there for a phanomyces, we've got those options to send them away to, uh, to, to some commercial labs and request a soil bait test. They can confirm a phano and, and fusarium species in the soil there. And then there's an app that's recently been developed too. So Dr. Steve Shirtliff at the U of S has the, uh, the acronyms area. So it's the phanomyces risk evaluation app. And that can help tell you some uh, historical data on some fields, how much uh, how much rainfall was was in each year in those high uh, high risk months, and then what crops were grown too. So, kind of give you an idea of the risk of of that field for developing uh, a phanomyces. One thing I'd really like to to emphasize is with the chickpeas. So, getting your seed tested with the chickpeas is really important. Um, if you're going to be insuring them with crop insurance, you have to have less than 0.3% seedborne ascochyta, and they have to be treated with a pythium controlling seed treatment. And if not, and you have a, a a case of loss and a claim in that field, you might be denied coverage. Those are two things that are required for the uh, the agronomic practice for for SCIC there. But I guess the you know the options for seed treatments you kind of have to be chosen in accordance with the pest pressures that you're most at risk for. Um, most of our treatments are going to have a robust fungicide package, so they're going to check a lot of the boxes when it comes to to the diseases that they control and protect against in early season. Aphanomyces is the one that's that's a little bit trickier with these seed treatments. So you might actually have to purchase a, a, a specialized treatment that has that additional active that works on aphanomyces. Also looking at insect pressures. So when you're considering uh, a seed treatment, you might have to toss in uh, an insecticide with that on the peas or the faba beans. We did have some high pea leaf weevil pressure in, in some areas this year and the 2023 pressure uh, or heat map, I guess, is available on the uh, Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture's website. So take a look at that and see if uh, if you're in maybe one of those higher risk areas, it might be something to consider as well. And then compatibility always consider that and, and the application methods. So making sure you understand and are set up to handle both the inoculant and the seed treatment products to ensure your greatest efficacy possible. And he thinks farmers should have their inoculants and seed treatments lined up for this next growing season as soon as possible. Mike Brown is an agronomy manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. His comments come from the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. And that'll do it for Saskag today for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program.